everyone. Today I'm joined by Emmy Award winning writer, executive producer David Mandel. He is involved in all the TV shows you probably know that I love, like Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm, of course, Veep. So thank you so much for joining me, David. It's a real honor to have you here to join us. No, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Now, look, before we um jump in, I you have another podcast and I was like, are you a big fan of Mythbusters? Because you had Adam yeah, on. Yeah, we had we had Adam on um yeah. uh, which was great. I mean, I'm the 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 the, the podcast is uh, it's called The Stuff Dreams Are Made Of. It's about uh movie prop collecting. It's about collo- collecting in general, but very specifically movie prop collecting. And so the connection with Adam is um he obviously is obsessed with props, although he takes it to the next step because he builds his own, which is kind of incredible. I yeah. just end up buying them in auction. So it's a little less uh interesting and a lot more expensive but building your own would probably be a lot better but anyway uh so that's sort of the connection yeah i'll ask you a lot about your podcast later but i just was oh, like, no worse. i haven't seen mythbusters in ages i love that show so are you working on anything at the moment yeah i'm trying to put the desperately trying to put the finishing touches on a uh new limited series for hbo called uh white house plumbers which is about watergate from the perspective of the plumbers, uh, specifically Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy and the Cubans. And they're all sort of, I don't know, you know, and I don't know how much you guys get sort of learn about Watergate down uh, in your neck of the woods, as they like, say. Enough, but, but it's not like it's drummed into us unless you see yeah, it's, it's funny. It's one of those things here in the U.S. where like in like high school, you, you're lucky. Maybe you get up to like John F. Kennedy. Like it always seemed like whenever you did American history, you kind of maybe made it to the 60s and never quite made it to Watergate. So I feel like everybody knows what it is, but nobody really knows what went on, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. And the the plumbers, which was their nickname because they, they fixed the leaks, basically, they they're the ones in every Watergate movie that you see at the beginning of the movie, you see them doing the break-in and then there's a headline about how they got arrested and then you never see them again. And that's sort of one of the more interesting things about it, which is it's sort of, it's those guys, but it's their story, if that makes any sense. So, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, everything HBO produces is amazing. So that's... I think they 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 they're they're a good place, but uh, yeah, it's something I have been working on since before the pandemic it has been going on so long and endlessly because of the pandemic and everything connected to the pandemic, and now finally trying to put the finishing touches on it. So yeah, yeah, I think it might be interesting for writers or just creative people listening. During the pandemic, did you kind of like accumulate ideas, or were you just working on like? the said project you were just mentioning or did you just try to keep brainstorming I guess a little a little bit of both I mean the honest answer was there was sort of the the initial phase of the pandemic you know where you know they sent us home on a Thursday at least here in America it was just very you know all of a sudden it was like you got to pick your kids up at school it was like it's like we're shutting down it's like someone like flipped a switch we're shutting down and so it you know at that sort of very odd moment um you know it just nothing seemed like anything you know we were we were cleaning our mail and you know scrubbing our groceries on the front steps and all of that stuff and you know very very sort of very complicated feelings um and so i I can't say at that moment i did a lot of you know new ideas and and on the flip side i also didn't necessarily know like 
are we ever going to come back to this thing that we're doing as, as you know, as you know, so it was like, it wasn't like, let's dig in on the Watergate thing as sort of we moved forward. And it seemed like, I don't know, you know, and again, these are the phases. It seemed like, okay, we're here, but hopefully someday we'll return to shooting. It was a decent time to get the scripts into shape to actually, you know, work on scripts and, you know, so that when this mythical, we're going to shoot it comes along. And of course that moved a couple of times, you would sort of have that time and, you know, that's good and bad. And, you know, it's one of those things that's sort of funny and obviously writers are different. There are definitely the writers that wake up every day and they sit down from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. And then they have their breakfast and then they sit down again from 10 to noon and they have lunch and whatever. And I'm not that guy. I'm the guy that calculates what is the what is the exact amount of time I need to do whatever it is that needs to get done. And then I back it in from whatever the time it. So if it's due at 9am and it's going to take me 12 hours, I start at 9.01pm the night before. And that doesn't matter whether you give me two years, two weeks or two days, it's all going to kind of get started at 9pm, which is a, horrific horrific writing habit and whatever and yet i enjoy the adrenaline i enjoy the the boats being burned behind me i enjoy the the i have to get it done that forces me to it's get it done at the heels of like, yes exactly the alligators exactly yeah, which is look it's not i can't and again you know i say this to my my kids all the time which is you know don't emulate it it's not it's not a good habit it is my habit um i also work with the television on which i don't recommend to anybody but i do it um so again sort of you know when sometimes when i talk about writing and you know i go to like you know whatever like a class or something and i talk about writing and they're like what's your method and it's just like well don't i have no method it's it's, it's a very it's as half-assed as it could be so where i was going with this is you know having unlimited amount of time no sense of are we ever shooting this thing you know, again, wasn't ideal, ideal, but eventually out of at least a sense of boredom, I did start to both write down ideas that I thought were interesting and also, I guess, finally start working on the scripts, uh, you know, to kind of get them into shape with this, you know, vision of doing it someday. Um, you know, the at some point in there, and again, I can't even remember when these things all happened. Um, uh, New York magazine reached out to ask about, like, they were kind of doing this very silly thing of, it was very fun. It was like a sort of an idea of like, how would your TV show? And obviously at that point Veep was finished, but how would like Veep react to COVID? And, uh, I ended up writing this thing, which you can find online, but it's actually most people, you know, I don't know. It's just one of those things where people kind of wrote like little, like, you know, like three sentences, whatever. And I wrote this entire piece. Like I wrote like a, not exactly scene by scene, but I wrote like, the, 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 the like sort of this big idea about how Selena would deal with with COVID, and it and when I was I remember doing that and kind of going oh I see I I actually wish I was working on something like I like I like this is an outpouring of I'm very bored and I'm really just writing this even though no one's asked me to write this <laughs> as long as I have which was interesting and it was you know and sort of somewhere in there segued into working on the show I needed to work on. What I didn't want to work on, I'll be very honest, and still don't and have no real interest per se, was while I did do that piece, 
I, I, I had, did not have COVID ideas. Like I wasn't interested in, you know, shows that took place during COVID or about COVID. I've had, I've had one idea that's a little more of a post COVID idea, but I had no interest in like, like let's do a show or let's write a movie about what it's like to be locked up and on zoom. It's bad enough that we're on zoom. You're, you're in Australia. I'm in Los Angeles. It's wonderful. We're on zoom, but the, the, but things were like, we should be together in a, you know, restaurant having breakfast when those get moved to zoom, it's just nothing. I don't know. Nothing's I also have my own little weird method where I'm really odd. Like I can't map anything out. I just literally sit down and write as I'm going. Like I create it as I'm going. No, I I outline and it's really the outlining that allows me to to do, I guess, to some extent what I do, which is I build a bulletproof outline. That's how I was taught to write really, really, really by Larry David taught me to write (gasps) basically how I write sitcoms. I was taught by Larry David and those outlines that we had for Seinfeld that we used on Curb Your Enthusiasm, although the Curb didn't have scripts, you know, but but the outlines are so bullet, you know, proof that obviously the actors don't need the scripts. But if you needed a script, I could whip you up a script out of those. Those outlines are so good. You could whip up a script. And so by again, with something like Veep, by figuring out the entire season, by having a real 10-episode master arc. And in some ways, the 10-episode master arc is also then throwing into the next season when we were kind of more doing multiple seasons. You know, now, obviously, the show's done. But so when I took over... you know, as I was working on the last episode, there was a sense of what then the first episode of the following season would be. And because of the first episode of what the following season was going to be, I then also kind of knew where the final episode of the season I hadn't even written yet was going to be, which of course then threw into the first episode. So I'm always thinking Uh, like that. Yes, exactly. Arcs of the individual seasons, but also really in some ways, like the multiple years that I did on the show, but then also each episode crazily outlined so that you can sit down at nine o'clock the night before it's and pound it out yes exactly I think, and yeah. i guess episodic <laughs> writing is a little different like for me i'm just in my own little world writing but obviously sure. when there's a team and there's a structure and there's you know it's there's deadlines and networks and things involved i imagine that's very different but i would that was one of my questions to you is um you know, i know in one of your acceptance speeches you mentioned the people that taught you writing and you mentioned like you know Jerry Seinfeld now Franken and Larry David now I I find it fascinating that Curb doesn't really have like the particular script so the outline is it really just really hard beats and so everybody knows that that's that has to yes. happen episode yes I mean there's usually an order to things so that obviously each scene is it's each scene and then you know each scene and then so you know there's an order to the scenes and then the scene it'll be basically you know how you might give something to a writer to go off and write it which is Jeff and Larry come in from the grocery store Susie is mad they forgot to get celery Larry mentions he's going to the birthday party tonight Susie's angry they weren't invited she leaves the room Jeff says we were invited I didn't tell I'm making this up as we go along Jeff says I didn't yeah, I so. not episode, yeah. says oh I we were invited but I didn't want to go so I didn't tell her whatever whatever there's sort of an order to that whole thing and obviously some of that might change but you're kind of laying out these are the things that need to be in the scenes there's not a lot of necessarily joke jokes maybe little things about like maybe there might be something about 
you know, why they forgot the celery or something like that. But, you know, it's not the jokes are what you're really looking for to come out of the improv, but you are really laying down and very specifically what needs to be in that scene. And to some extent, the order it needs to be in. And that gives you those guidelines because it's those strands. If that birthday party isn't introduced the way I just said it, then that story, whatever the hell that made up story is going to be, is going to fall apart. And so it's the discipline of the outline. And so with with such great comedic writers, and I think another thing I've heard read is, you know, that because they're such amazing actors and such like their comedic prowess is just ridiculous that they're enhancing the script all the time, which I think, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, that can sometimes go the opposite way, like obviously with scripts, but that's an amazing. Oh, very much so. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I've said, I've said this before, but you know, as writers, you know, we all have the ego of, you know, how I hear it in my head is about my, as, my way is the best yeah, way. Is, yeah, is the best way. Yeah. And the true, I guess, the most incredible feeling in life is when actors read it and it's I mean, I guess, you know, I used to think an actor reading it the way I heard it in my head was the best thing. And really the best thing is when an actor reads it and it's not how you heard it in your head, but it's even better than the way you heard it in your head. And, yeah, yeah. And I have been you know, very, uh, you know, both proud and lucky to have worked, you know, certainly on Seinfeld where it happened, on Curb where it happens, and on Veep where it happens. And it doesn't always happen. But Yeah. Are there any particular, I know you've done so many episodes, but is there anything like that you can recall where that actually happened to you? Like, were there any lines that you were like, oh. It's funny. Sometimes I remember lines that I don't even necessarily know if they're necessarily from my episodes. (laughs) They're episodes I definitely worked on. There was one on Seinfeld that always really made me laugh where um, it was the episode where George lies to Susan's parents that he has a house in the Hamptons to get out of going to something. (laughs) And Julia, or sorry, Elaine tells the parents that he doesn't. And then the episode is George, they know George is lying and George knows they know, but he now gets angry at them and wants them to admit that they know he's lying. So he keeps pushing it and pushing it and eventually gets them in the car and drives out to the Hamptons to where there is no house. He's making up details about a horse that's there and all this. Like, it's really, it's great, George, and really kind of crazy in a wonderful way. But when uh, in the scene where right after he tells him and Julie tells him there's a scene, I think it's in Jerry's apartment where he's like, I told him I had a house in the Hamptons and Julie just goes, well, I told him you didn't. And then I laughed and laughed and laughed and I cannot explain it, but that read that she did of, I told him you didn't. And yeah. then I laughed and it's just like, I, I, I just, it is in my head as just one of the, I, it's my, one of my favorite line readings ever. And yeah. Again, I'm not sure I can tell you what I thought the line was going to be read like, but it was just like, that is perfection. Yeah. <laughs> I've always wondered, you know, like how, like with regular scripts, you know, you do like changes or alts. I'm not sure necessarily. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then there's all the different colored scripts and things. What about when with comedy, though, because people could be like throwing out great lines. Are you tweaking it a lot or as the executive producers going, actually, no, this this is the outline and this is what we want to do i guess i guess the answer is is you know certainly there's you know i don't know what the word is colors on the script yeah um uh you know 
I think uh, single camera is different than uh, multicam. You know, on multicam, there were sort of these set sort of rehearsals that we would visit of the entire show and network run-throughs. And off of those things, sort of changes were added by the actors and the director as they did it, like, you know, little things that were needed or, oh, we need a line to get over and whatnot. Or we started throwing joke pitches in, like, instead of this, how about that, whatever. And whether okay. it was to Larry or when Larry was gone. So to some extent, there were some definitive I guess what's the word I'm looking for? There were moments to do it. It would be like, here's a camera rehearsal. Here's a network rehearsal. Here's the dress rehearsal. Here's the, you know, whatever. And then on the show night, each scene would be done twice. And so if you had an idea after the first run, often it could, you could pitch an idea. That's and at right. that point, and at that point, new pages would not be issued. It would just kind of be written in and tried. Okay. On yeah. the single camera, you're not really doing sometimes we would we would pull a couple of key scenes of Veep, for example, and rehearse them. What's the word I'm looking for? And rehearse them occasionally, like in the office, or if we had a set, we would do it on the set. Sometimes we didn't have the set. And sometimes those were some big scenes, and they were often like key scenes. Like basically every time Hugh Laurie came back to the show, we would re we would definitely rehearse like big Julia Hugh Laurie scenes. Mm -hmm. And we would put them on their feet again, sometimes in the office and we would be watching them and try stuff and throw stuff in. And there'd be, sometimes there'd be multiple colors because it would exist. I would talk to Julie about it. I would take another run at it. Then that'd be another color. Then he'd, Hugh would come in, we'd okay. put it on its feet. And then off of that, another color would come along. And so there'd be some multiple colors as we went through the process. But the truth is, and this is where a show like Veep sort of bumps into a show like Curb Your Enthusiasm, even though they, one has a script and one doesn't. When you're actually shooting the scene, there was definitely an effort to, I'm going to get the scene as it's written. But as what, but what that means is we're going to put it on its feet. We're going to see it for the first time. Now we're seeing it for the first time. Ooh, this isn't working quite the right way. This isn't whatever. I think we could do better here. I think we could do better here. And so I'm getting I'm getting alts from writers. I'm coming up with alts myself. I'm gluing them together. I'm piecing them together. I'm putting favorites into the script. Sometimes issuing new pages right then and there while the can while the set's being lit. Here's the new pages that bring everything we just talked about in. Sometimes I mean sometimes it was crazy. Like we've got a scene and you realize oh I've got Sam here and he's got one. One line at the front and one line in the back. Richard sort of speaks at the beginning. And in the end, let me yeah. find two good spots for Richard to throw something in. And also, I don't want silence. So any place there's silence that I can jam another joke in, I'm going to do that. So then a new script kind of gets issued like, as, as I said, as it's being lit and now we're going to, everyone gets handed it and we're going to kind of put it on its feet. We're going to start filming it. Here's this new script. I don't, sometimes it is a color, but no one at this point, like half the time it's never on a color, but it's, it's called blue or something, even though sometimes yeah. it's just handed out on white paper, but we, yeah. we, 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 we do technically revise the script. So that's going on and we shoot the scene that way. And then at a certain point, usually when I'm in the tighter coverage, now I'm going to take all the stuff that I didn't use and also all the things I've thought about or anything interesting the writers have thought about while we've been now watching this and getting the scene. And now I might just start yelling out don't leave or say this or try this or try this you know and i'm and sometimes i'm you know imagine 
the you know that your camera's on you i'm behind the camera and i'm just there and i'm just sometimes going you know julia this time try this line now try this line okay now matt you say that i mean and i'm just doing it right then and there and so there's you know script supervisor becomes a very or scripty whatever you guys call it becomes insanely hard um and obviously lots of options and the hope being that obviously you get into an editing room and one jumps out and usually one does but you know definitely always game to try stuff and it's worked many ways where sometimes a joke that you know i remember things i pitched julia and she was just like no 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 oh, okay no. and i was like yeah and it's like well just <laughs> oh, try no. it just try it just try it and she tries and she does it and then of course it's in the show later but also the other way too which is something we think is great and then we try a couple other things and sometimes the one you did first was the one and sometimes you get in the edit room and go eh, i don't know somehow this one that we didn't think much of is seeming more interesting to me. So, you know, I could probably go back in and edit the shows a million different ways, but so that's where the shows are a little different. And on Curb, where there weren't necessarily script scripts, doing it basically take one, sometimes into take two, but take one kind of often creates the structure. And and what I mean by that is, is we do it again. It's very willy nilly, but we're doing it. And we're shooting it. We are filming it. And you kind of going, this is working. Or sometimes immediately you go, oh, no, 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 no. We have to come into the scene. And I know we said it was going to be about where's the celery, but it doesn't, it's not going to work. We got to get Susie in and out twice. So instead she's going to be in the kitchen. You guys are going to come in and she's going to go and you're going to talk about the birthday thing right from the get go. And then she's going to leave and then she's going to come back later for celery. I'm making, again, there's none of this yeah. makes any it, sense. It, but what I'm saying is, is yeah. you put it on its feet and all of a sudden you realize the structure is not the structure, you the order. And so you're trying to lock the order and kind of what's happening. And oh. then once a order is locked, you are then sort of almost alting it in a good way. Like what we're just, what I just was talking about with Veep, which is yeah. now the structure's there, we're doing it. And now here's this other idea I thought about. And here's this other idea I thought about. And, you know, the pleasure of the show, and some of these things are literally in the show. There's an episode of uh, Curb, I remember, where we were shooting in Malibu when uh, Cheryl is divorcing Larry. um, And she's got this great house in Malibu. And he's a little (laughs) upset about the house because he feels like it's his money or whatever, whatever, whatever. But we're doing this scene with these gorgeous, you know, full, you know, like floor to ceiling windows. Larry's like looking out the window and Larry actually saw a dolphin and in the middle of the scene jumps up and it's just like, there's a dolphin and just kept the scene going, except he saw a dolphin, which obviously is in no outline, no script, was not in takes one through whatever, but it was just so real and so hilarious. And he, and he kept in it and she kept in it. They did not break. And so it goes, there have been things sometimes where they break and then you go, that's oh, too good. Let's try and recreate it. Now we're going to pretend you're seeing a dolphin, even if we're not seeing a dolphin, because now the dolphin thing is in the fabric. And then there are also times where we've done a couple um, and you know, you do it, you do it, you do it, you do it. I remember there was one Jeff and Larry and all uh, sitting at a table and at some point or another, they drank or accidentally drank each other's water or they weren't sure whose water was which. And this just happened. That's a perfect and, episode it, in yeah. itself. <laughs> and, and you just kind of, and like, and they just played yeah. it, but they just got rid of their water. And all of a sudden this scene that I couldn't even tell you what originally it was about had this gem of this water moment that of course then just is in the scene yes exactly exactly and so 
there's no great answer to it. It's as close to what I always call live rewriting. It feels like yeah. we're doing like a live rewriting and there's oh, nothing better than that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like I... Veep, Veep got close with all the alts, but there was something about no script at all with Curb that just was, I mean, again, I guess I, wow. I guess what we're learning about me is I like that adrenaline. I like the, yeah, the I can tell. yes, uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The, the more difficult, the better I'm, the more interested I am in it. Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. I it's I think it's really good that you just explained all that because for me I just had a bit of epiphany then as you were talking because when I'm writing, you know, you're so head down on the paper and it's very – I'm not very visual. I have a really difficult time and not all of us have the luxury of like, you know, of that scenario. But I think even sometimes maybe if you just had your friends or, act like you know, people talking it out would help you kind of – as a technique, maybe for people. I mean, I think, you know, hearing stuff, I mean, even, you know, we do it, you know, when we do the table read, which obviously is not friends, but you're hearing it, whatever, but you yeah. get to hear it for the first, I mean, every phase of it, but I'm also, I'm a big believer, I guess, in lieu of friends of like, you know, reading my own stuff aloud. Like yes. I, that to me yeah. is sort of the fine, not the final step, but for me, I read everything aloud, both in terms of like looking for the rhythms of it and all, but also, I don't know, just somehow when you're reading it, you start to see and that. feel the scene. Yeah. yeah. And I will also say the following. And again, I don't necessarily consider myself the world's, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, I started directing because I was directing to eliminate a step of getting my scripts into the world you know what i mean like 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 and i worked with both some great directors um and i've also worked with some terrible directors um you know and on something like on seinfeld andy ackerman was just incredible and i learned just a lot being around him and also just the way he staged stuff but also the way he gave them business and i just just fabulous just fabulous you know and the way he thought about the show but also he was a former editor that's how he got into directing and so how he was thinking about what cuts could be. i mean just a lot of that kind of stuff it was really fascinating when i did finally start directing myself i definitely started thinking more about and i don't just mean what it looks like but i definitely started thinking more about the scene playing out and what that means as opposed to words on a page where sometimes early on it was just words on a page, words on a page. And then it's like the miracle of, Oh, look, they're walking now. I didn't yeah. know they could walk. Yeah, exactly. The actions actually happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Something I would love to maybe touch on. And I think my podcast does touch on mental health a little bit and writing is, can be a lonely job if you're not sort of in, in a writer's room or doing that sort of thing. And a lot of people do just write for pleasure by themselves, but I think I've heard you speak about having partners or like writing partners yep. and partnerships. And I think that's really important because I think it can be quite isolating. And so can you just talk a little bit more about like the benefits of having a partner? Sure. I worked both. I mean, I sort of started my career with, I guess, very, very early on. I mean, technically, I guess, I, I but the first thing I ever worked on, I worked on with these uh, two guys, Jeff Schaefer and Alec Berg, and they were older than me. And so they left for California and kind of became a twosome. And I ended up going to New York, but we were always friends. And in the early days of the internet, we were reading each other's stuff, even though, you know, I was working in New York and they were working in Los Angeles. And so we were very much in each other's stuff for that exact reason, which is it's both somewhat lonely and also, you know, you're looking for feedback, but you also want feedback that's not going to like 
I don't know, what can I say in those early days, make fun of you, or at least make fun of you in a way that you can accept. But, you know, if something sucks, I want to hear it from them and fix it before I show it to my boss. So that was in the early, early days. Um, and then we ended up working, we were, they went to Seinfeld a year before me. And then I joined them at Seinfeld and we worked again, both separately and together at Seinfeld. And I, I won't get into the, the, it's a very confusing story where we ended up for a while. We, we had separate television careers, but we started writing movies together. So we were a partnership for movies, but we were separate for television. And then our movie work just kind of took off. And so all of a sudden we weren't working separately. We were, we were for many years, we were three partners. Um, and you know, it was, you know, it's all those things you think, which is, you know, uh, there's a very, I don't know, I don't know, maybe this is, this to me is the perfect example. And it's not a writing example, but it is an example. There was a point where we had written a draft of a movie script. We had written a draft of the film that became the cat in the hat, but it was our first draft. It was our draft, our draft got a lot of interesting meetings for us throughout like Hollywood. Just in, people liked it and it was really interesting. And one of the more interesting meetings was uh, we got to go up to Lucasfilm to meet George Lucas, who had an idea. And as a, certainly a Star Wars fan and a prop collector, obviously, yeah, okay, <laughs> well, I can't wait to go. And what the funny part of the story, I guess, is honestly – and it's sort of the, the beauty of a t of, of, of having being sort of a team was the three of us went up there together and it was very fun to do that. And, you know, we were friends and, you know, we were definitely three of the, we were, you know, especially again, these are early sort of single days and whatever, where we would work together all day and then go home and then meet for dinner and go to a movie sometimes with the occasional other person, but it was definitely, that was the life. We were very like in each other's lives. Anyway, we go up to, uh, we go up to Lucasfilm and we, we go in to have our meeting with George. And the easiest way I can say this is George Lucas is not a big talker. And so luckily there were three of us. And so to some extent we interviewed each other, for the job that we didn't know what the job was and he wasn't telling us, but it would be like, you know, that's interesting. Jeff, why don't you tell him about, you know, it was just like that. Yeah. And what I remember distinctly was when we left the interview, we, we left and the, we saw sort of the next guy that was going in and it was a, it was a single, it was a one guy. And I remember walking away and the three of us were like, that poor son of a bitch, because it's going to be dead silence because George yeah. ain't going to ask any questions. And, yeah. and that is a very simplistic, idiotic, but with a great name drop version of, uh, of, of like why working with partners is a great thing, which is at some point it's rarely silent. And I think most writers, we bang our heads at the silence. Now I've been, I think I'm pretty lucky in that, while I stall a lot and I procrastinate like nobody's business. Yeah, yeah. It's not particularly from a writer's block or a real writer's block kind of a thing. And you know, whatever we want us knock on wood or whatever, that's not something, I mean, I've definitely written scenes that I didn't think were right, but I felt like they were in a ballpark, you know, on the journey towards right. I've never, sat there and stared like i don't know what to do i can't get this scene out um and maybe in a way some of that also comes from working with two other guys which is to say 
our process was often very early on, like, let's just get a draft as quick as we can. Meaning we would spend our time on the outline. We often knew the outline was long, but at a certain point it's like, let's just have a script so we can figure out what's working and not working. And sometimes it was literally like, okay, by next week, I'm going to write these five scenes. You write those five scenes. He's going to write those five scenes. And it doesn't matter. And we put them together. And you wrote a scene where there's a brother. And I wrote one with a sister. And you wrote one where there's two brothers. And, you know, it's like nothing makes any sense. But it was just like, here it is. And now let's just go through it and just kind of start going what works and whatever. And some of this also subconnects to... I guess a little bit of how I got into comedy writing. I'm certainly always interested in it, but I got into it in college. I was part of the the Harvard Lampoon, which yeah. here in America is sort of a big sort of, I don't know, comedy pipeline, I guess, and Conan O'Brien and whatnot, which, you know, is true. Like that, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, you know, and it's true, but it doesn't mean it wasn't easy either, but it is, I guess, unfortunately true. There are advantages to it. Yeah. However, what the true advantage is, is it felt like, and I didn't know this at the time, this is something I've pieced together now as an old man. Um, I feel like what I didn't know at the time was what was truly great about the Harvard Lampoon is I was in a writer's room, even though I didn't know I was in a writer's room. And oh, what yeah. that meant was, is you got very used to trying both, you know, a little bit of like the comedy alpha dog, like you're trying to outdo somebody else. You're trying to think of the idea that somebody else isn't going to think of. You were going to be shit upon for the crappy ideas. You're going to be shit upon for bad jokes. You're going to get those beaten out of you to some extent. And so when I emerged from the lampoon, even though I didn't necessarily know how to specifically write an outline for a sitcom or whatever, yeah. I had had the 12 rounds of boxing of being in a writer's room and I had learned certain things to value, certain things to not value, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, where I was going with all of this is, is I, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a precious writer. I'll tell you when I think what I have is better and right and good, but I also don't think everything I have is perfect. And I'm a big believer in, that's the better joke and the better joke wins because at the end of the day, all I fucking care about. And again, you know, you want to talk mental health. Well, here's where what's truly wrong with me is all I fucking care about is, is the show funny? That's all I fucking care. about. I don't really care about anything else. If the show isn't funny and I will, I will kill myself to get, I will drag myself over, you know, nails to get yeah. something funny and I will work it 24 hours a day. I'll sleep at a desk to get it right. And I will keep going and we will do take after take. I don't care. I will stop the set and go back to the office and rewrite yeah. it. If it's not working, I don't care, but you have to, I just, it, you, cause all I care about is it's good. And I've also seen a lot of shows where people don't fucking care and that's fine. I can't they just do want to that. Dance, right? Yeah. There's networks, there's dollars. They just, it's pumping out. And I think, but that's, that comes down to too, like, you know, pride in your work and wanting to have that, that output that is the, you know, and that's yeah, why, you know, occasionally, <laughs> occasionally unhealthy. I mean, there's something to be said for, I mean, it sounds like a bad college kid interviewing, you know, tell us what's your worst habit. Well, my worst habit is I'm a perfectionist, but yeah. I think I can be a, probably a bit of a perfectionist. Again, I don't know what perfection is, but whatever I think my version of perfection is, is I find it very hard when things aren't perfect. I mean, I don't know what else to say. And <laughs> I find it when people can't 
understand it. And when people do understand it, and some, one of the wonderful things about Veep was it was a like-minded hive of both cast, crew, writers, everybody, chief among them, Julia, where she and I, it is, we were just the same yeah. value system yeah. of it has to be, I, I mean, again, I, I don't mean perfect in the sense of perfect because again in the eye of the beholder but it has got to be as great as we can make it and again you know uh i I don't have a great answer it just and i'll tell you i mean look uh, you know on my movie stuff where i don't i've not often had the control you know that's the, the the you know in tv the writer is king and not so much in the movie world at least certainly i don't know how it works specifically in australia but in our in our in our sort of the yeah okay the american version you know again tv great and the other side whatever and so you know not every one of my tv experiences i definitely you know i have pilots that didn't go anywhere like anybody else but the good experiences have been very good and on my movie stuff i've had experiences that i've enjoyed but and i and I, there are definitely good things i can say about movies i've worked on but there's also a lot of that i disagree with and it isn't the way i wanted it whatever and those have been very unfun sometimes unfun experiences and you know in some cases i mean you know you want to i mean again you know and it's always tough i never know quite how to grade you know you, you know how you grade your own problems but you know i've i worked on a i had an experience on a movie where i worked uh, you know, like two years or so, and I was away from home and when all was said and done and it was just not great. And it wasn't not great. Like I was like, here's what I think it should be. And people just aren't getting it, which I can live with. If I do something and people don't like it, I'm okay. Cause I'll just think to myself, well, they're idiots. They don't understand <laughs> it. Yeah. But this was a case where we worked very hard and felt like the show wasn't the movie wasn't the film like we it was there but we weren't being allowed to cut it the way i thought it should be in a lot of these kinds of things and when i came out of that i mean you know again i don't know the words you know i guess certainly a certain level of depression but a, a real year of my life where just the a combination of what the end movie was and a little bit of not necessarily, not necessarily how it did, although I guess that's a part of it, but that connection of my name on this thing that I am not proud of, but also what I considered the fact to be that I knew was in there. Like I, to this day feel like if you gave me like a week in an edit room with all the old footage, I could make such a better movie out of it. Um, but also the time of my life, the being in New York at the time away from my young kids and just sort of a sense that had I not gone to New York and there was a moment I remember we would worked in L.A. for about a year and then we, it was time to go to New York and I was the third to go. We kind of went in sort of waves and I was the third to go because one of the guys had to leave early. And so I was going to say, anyway, I don't know, something like that. And anyway, long story short, I can remember that night before because it wasn't great. And I remember thinking to myself, like, why am I going? Why am I doing this? And, I, you know, again, that the regret of why, why? Why did I go? If I just not gone to New York, this movie would be equally the same in terms of its terribleness, but I would have been home and I would have been with my, you know, whatever, four-year-old daughter and two-year-old son and whatever. And it, it, it just like, so, you know, again, not, not a COVID experience, but you know, oh, so yeah. yeah. It's, 
I want to ask a question which might maybe seem a bit strange. Forgive no, me. Go ahead. No, no. I like how God, it seems gone are the days where there's like a showrunner or slash executive producer, like just one, one or two. Now there are, so, you know, you're watching the titles for something. And no, there's-, there's millions. It's it's a tough one. I mean, you know, look, obviously, look, yeah. you know, you can look at Veep, for example, and obviously there's a number of executive producers. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at who they are, obviously there's people where you kind of go like, look, Julia's an executive producer, but, you know, Julia's Julia. And obviously she's incredibly involved in all of it, but yeah. she's not she's not going to sit down and write a script, but she's certainly going to be involved in talking about it and whatever, whatever. And so then there are. Yes. And then some of the other executive producers, there are definitely people who, you know, one of them was, I think, Armando Iannucci's, you know, ma- manager or agent at the time. And he's an exec producer, you know, so you have those people. And then you have people that are like on the actual producing side, not so much the creative content, although they do get involved in that. But, you know, they make the, you know, they make the trains run on time, whatever, whatever, whatever. On my show, uh, and I can't even remember, you know, who got what at this point, but um I look, I agree. I think executive producers, certainly even to writers, let's just talk about writers for three yep. seconds. It is a title because everybody wants it, because everybody wants to be a showrunner, which of course is a word that didn't even exist, you know, years we never ago. Called now, that. Yeah. Called now it. I go, now I go like sometimes I go and visit, like, you know, I talked to class, I mentioned I talked to like, you know, classes at film schools, whatever. Yeah. And it's like, you know, the the question gets asked, like, who wants to be a showrunner? And hands go up. And it's like, showrunner? This, like, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I yes. had no idea what a showrunner was. Yeah. But it's a term now. And people yeah. know me as a showrunner. Great. I'm glad they do. But I don't oh. know. Yeah, it's so strange. But anyway, where I was going with this story, or not really a story, is on my show, I, well, let me back up one second. I I believe the the exec producer credit is just given out willy nilly because sometimes it's given out just as you know it's just like oh another year time for you to rise up the ladder, and there are so many executive producers and and by the way, not just exec producers but the the higher levels of writers that have been you know have long careers that I wouldn't work with if you paid me because they may have a credit. They don't know what a story is. I don't care. Customers can't and, get credit. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And well, so, yeah, and I mean, the list of people that I think are actually like doing it versus the people that I think are actually good at it is a very, very different list. And, you know, something I did on Veep, and again, it was nothing personal to anybody, was, you know, uh, there was my 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 number two, a guy named Lou Morton, who was basically going to have the exec producer credit with me. And to some extent, nobody else. And there was a limit to how I, how high I was going to let people go. I was very honest about it. It was just sort of, you're, you are great writers. You're doing your thing, but you are, I'm not just giving away the executive producer credit to me. It's very important. It speaks to, it speaks to what I am doing. It speaks to what those of us that are doing it. Now, when you're the one guy doing that in the universe, I'm not sure it really makes much of a, a dent because there's a million people getting exec producer credits elsewhere. I think it's fucking ridiculous. So, so what about writers' rooms? And talk to me about this phenomenon. It's not so popular here, to my knowledge. I I, I love. I mean, so it's funny. Writers' rooms is sort of one of those interesting things. I love writers' rooms in a certain way, but I also hate them in a certain way. And in American sitcoms, there is a sense of the writers' room, especially like I said on sitcoms, not so much on the drama stuff, but on American sitcoms. They're certainly what what we used to call like the network sitcoms, you know, mm-hmm. like like, you know, just like the shows. And again, both good shows, you know, whatever show okay. people like, like Friends and whatnot or Mad About You or whatever, but also 
lots of shows that people don't like too, but you know, things that die after a year or two, but they are gang written in the writer's room. Yeah. And what that has always meant is everybody's kind of together. Everything's sort of beat out. You might put in a lot of stuff, but it's my turn yeah, because I have a higher title. And so it's going to get handed to me and I'm going to get the credit for writing the episode, even though what I'm really doing is I'm taking either a tape recording or sometimes notes that were typed up by a writer's assistant that has everybody's stuff in it and turned into, and I'll turn that into a script, which I'm sorry, is not really writing. No, it's and, like stealing it all together. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that was, you know, beautiful about Larry and Jerry was because neither of them had ever worked on a sitcom. They were unfamiliar with that system. And so initially there wasn't even much of a staff, but then even when there was a staff and then later on when there was a slightly bigger staff, they used us very differently. We were used sort of like we would write our individual episodes and your job was to come up with ideas and pitch them for your episode and then right. go off and write your episode and then give them your episode. And once in a while, if they got into trouble, you know, they sometimes gave scenes out because they just felt like something needed, you know, repairs. But it was a very all hands on deck. Everybody's doing one scene. But there wasn't that sense of like, wait a second, I pitched all of those stories, but it's someone any... else's turn. Yeah. And I, again, how I learned to do sitcoms, that's kind of what I took with me. Now, I think a writer's room is an incredible thing. And I would put certainly like the Veep writer's room against any writer's room in the world oh. for our ability to take a script and punch it up, punch the fuck out of it and make yeah, things yeah. so funny. And, you know, things that I will, you know, again, but that only works when the script is working because there's nothing worse than a script that isn't working with really funny lines. And that's something that certainly did occasionally happen. Like, especially when you're doing 22 on Seinfeld, there are episodes I can remember where joke for joke, they're really funny episodes, but the stories don't work and they're not particularly memorable and they don't really work. And therefore the episode itself isn't memorable. Although you could go and go, Oh my God, that's a really funny joke. Oh my God, that's a funny joke. They're, yeah. they're band-aids. They're fucking band-aids. I mean, it just, it's, yeah. it's just nothing. Chris story, 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 structure, structure, structure. If the structure doesn't work. If the story doesn't work. You've got nothing. Now, once you have that, you can then you can start to mess around and put the best yeah. jokes in it. What would you say then to people is the route to getting into to writing? I... I'm, not, I'm not sure I have a great answer to this. And by the way, also, I, you know, so much has changed to some extent since, you yeah. know, like back when I was truly trying to get a job, you know, for example, we were always writing, you know, spec scripts of current shows on TV. No. That, right. And now nobody wants that. Everybody wants sort of a spec pilot which, yeah. but I also don't understand. Uh, there was something very actually easy about a spec show because if someone's going to write a Seinfeld or a Murphy Brown or whatever, you can very quickly go, oh, they don't understand this show, just whatever. And yeah. I know they can't write because I know what these characters are supposed to be and they're not writing them that way. Whereas if I'm writing a, reading something that is a pilot, well, maybe they're supposed to be weird and off-putting. Maybe that's a characteristic or maybe it's bad. I, I always find, look, that being said, obviously there are incredible yeah. spec pilots and you go, oh, this person's a really great. There's so yeah. many problems. I mean, in our system over here where it's like, you know, it's like, 
you know, you can't get hired without an agent, but you can't get an agent until you have a job. So what does that mean? You know what I mean? You it's can't like, get a yeah. job without a credit, yeah. but you get credit to get yeah, a job. Yeah, it's like, yeah. And so I, I don't have any great answer. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I can tell you, look, this is not a, this is not helpful. You know, <laughs> Veep, which is something where, you know, the show had been done in, when I took it over from Armando Inucci, the show had been done in Baltimore with a mostly British, with an all British staff. Um, when I took the show over, we moved it to L.A. A couple of Brits stuck around. The rest of the Brits kind of either went with him or just kind of went back to London. Um, and so I was putting a staff together and I didn't feel like I had the luxury of, you know, like I wasn't starting from scratch. I kind of had to hit the ground running. And so I went out and I definitely recruited, you know, I don't I barely hired anyone that I'd never worked with. I mean, I think uh, I either knew them, knew them really well or literally had been in the trenches with them. I think I hired one writer who I met and just loved her stuff so much. And, she, but she was also highly recommended by a couple of people that I trust more than life itself. And so I counted that for a lot, but that was the only really like new person. And over the course, um, you know, yeah, you know, I, I brought other people in, but again, they were either people I knew or I knew how good they were. And at one point, and then I raised up one of our writer's assistants, one of our, I, I think she was a writer's assistant or a writer's PA. I can't even remember what her job was, but she was, I let, you know, she was throwing jokes in and I was using her jokes. I didn't even know I was using her jokes. I was just blindly taking alt submissions. Yeah. And I, and one day uh, Lou Morton was just like, you know, you're using a lot of Amelia's jokes. And when we finally came back after when Julia recovered from cancer, because we kind of shut down for a year and we came back from that, uh, made her a writer, made her a, you know, a staff writer because she'd earned it, which is not the same as went out and found a staff writer in the universe. But, you know, there was room to add someone new, yeah. just someone new that we were a little familiar with. So I, I, I no good answer there, but yeah. No, but I, I, I think it's still important to talk about it because I don't want people not to have hope that like it sure. doesn't that it doesn't happen but i think Look, i do think talent reveals itself I, I i mean i know that sounds very philosophical and very easy to say when you're on the side of the hiring but yes exactly but i do believe I yeah I, I hate to, you know you hate to say it like this there are rarely i don't know I, i'm sure there are some great people not working but there are also a lot of terrible people <laughs> working too so <laughs> yeah for me, something that I really liked about Veep is, so I love lipstick and MAC lipstick, they name their things, you know, like flirtatious or like ruby okay. blue. Or, and I'll just like, nod along. Yeah, yeah. And there was because of the ongoing lipstick scene, like issues with Sel Selena throughout it and Gary, um, that particularly just tickled me. But then there was like this whole big thread, you probably don't even know, like on Reddit about like the Dubin, I can't pronounce it. Dubonet. Dubonet, yeah, Dubonet yeah. yeah. Which is like uh, a terrible, it, no, no, it's not Debonair. It was like oh. a shitty, I think it was a shitty liqueur or cheap wine. Like, oh. A, like, 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 oh no, you know what it is? Actually, I can actually tell you exactly what it is. Sorry. I know exactly what it is. I, it yeah. took me a second. I, cause I, I not, not trying to be a credit hog, but I named it. Um, and yeah. I'll say two things. I'll say two things really quickly. One, when I did it, I, I definitely remembered, but didn't remember the earlier lipstick. And if I'd been really smart, it would have been, it would have been the same lipstick again. 
And I'm sorry it wasn't, although I would also make the argument that people sometimes do change lipsticks over well, time. And so I feel that. like, yeah, I feel like you could at least connect that she always has a lipstick that's important. And this was currently the new lipstick. But I guess if I was to criticize, I maybe perhaps if it had been this, the other lipstick, it would have been maybe the fans would have, you know, maybe something extra for them. But anyway, Dubonnet, uh, if you uh, go back and watch uh, Tootsie, oh. Dustin Hoffman is Tootsie goes into the Russian tea room with his agent, George played by Sidney Pollack, which in my, one of my all time favorite scenes when he, you know, goes basically, you know, hi there, you know, whatever. And it's like, uh, and it's like, it's your favorite client, Michael Dorsey. Oh, and he's just like, Oh God, I asked you to get help. But when (laughs) the waiter comes over and, you know, and she orders Tootsie orders, she orders a Dubonnet with a twist. So oh it's Dubonnet with a twist. So it's some, it's some weird liqueur is the That's answer. so funny because there was a Mac lipstick at the time and then it, it's been like discontinued. So there was oh. like this big uproar that we couldn't, I was like, she could have her own. Oh, that was just a side thing that I was giggling. Yes. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm glad you like that. I'll, and like I said, I, you know, the name. The ending, like, I, from all the wonderful people that you've worked with. Is there one particular memory like working with Julia that stands out for you? Like, I know there would be so many, but. It's so hard. I mean, especially with her. And obviously we have phases, you know, to our time together. And obviously initially when I was on Seinfeld, which was incredible and wonderful, but you know, she was Julia Louis-Dreyfus. She was Elaine and I don't know. My favorite character ever. No, incredible, incredible, incredible. And not that. Not that, you know, whatever she, but, you know, I, at the time I, you know, I was, I don't know what I was. I was like 25 and, yeah. you know, whatever she was, you know, like in her thirties, but like, you know, she was having kids and whatever. And so I, she just seemed like a real adult and we all just seemed like fucking idiots. You know what I mean? So <laughs> it was, you know, it was a pleasure working with her writing for her, but, and she was great, but, you know, obviously went with Veep, it was a we became a, you know, I, I like she, you, know, you, you talk about writing partners. She may not have sat in the room with me, but she was very much my writing partner on all of it. Just in the sense of, you know, it's just, we talked through things, you know, just what she added, what she also subtracted, you know, the, the her editing ability, but also just her voice in my head. I mean, I don't know what else to say. And, you know, the way we did the show together, which is very much a partnership, all aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the moments to me, you know, I can definitely think of, you know, specific like sort of scene moments, but the one that just, and again, this is Julia, that there's two really, um, they're similar, but different. One is there's the episode where they're at, uh, uh, the other president's uh, library opening. It's sort of the beginning of uh, the second to last season where she kind of gets the idea to have a library um, and they're there. And we shot it actually in the real uh, Ronald Reagan library out in uh, uh, Simi Valley, uh, California. And uh, in it, they have this sort of room with like a railing and then they have a, uh, you know, a, re- a replica oval office and so we were saying this is the replica oval office of president hughes who is the did the president call did the president call and he never of course calls and you don't ever you still don't see him and at some point or another a different former president comes into the room but she goes and goes to sit at the desk so she's kind of at the oval desk 
basically having lost the presidency now sitting at this replica oval office desk because she was never really allowed to sit you know well i guess she had sat at it but you know what i'm saying she's it's not there anymore and the the, the itch the hunger and and then of course it's like someone's coming because there's someone else is coming they don't know who and she goes to get out of there and it's like needs help and then what was written as, you know, oh, she's got to hurry and get out of there. And then we found we we got to we're like, we're going to get to do this at the Reagan Library. And it's like, oh, there's this thing here. Oh, maybe there's something funny with her, like getting over the little fence. And then, of course, that becomes a full on, you know, <laughs> Lucille Ball, you know, like 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 flip where Gary sort of like flips her over it and puts her down just as the guy lands. <laughs> and we did that. Time after time after time is, you know, uh, uh, it was her. She made it happen sort of, you know, I I wish I could sit there and say to you, oh, no, no, I choreographed it, whatever. I mean, again, I knew what the comedy was, but she and Tony, but she willed that into being. And then I can't remember. I want to say it was the next day where she sort of hikes up her shirt and there's like a black and blue kind of like one of those like ones where it's like yellow and black, like, like, like where basically the pivot point where I guess that part of her hip was on the, sorry, I bought my mic on the fencing. So that's where she like, that's. And so it just kept driving into that. I mean, she injured herself. And that's what I was talking about earlier of like crawling through like nails, you know, to get, to get it right. That's her in a nutshell. And the other one, which, yeah. And that's the the other one that I always love, which makes me laugh so much is in the congressional ball episode, um, which was, uh, I think it's episode, I don't know, six or seven of uh, my first season on the show um, written by Billy Kimball. Um, It's the scene where she and Tom James end up having sex in, I think it's the green room. I believe it's the green room. Um, and uh they have they have sex in the, the in the room and you know obviously we didn't film a full sex scene there's the confrontation that leads to them sort of making out whatever and then and then then the sex and there was just this hilarious moment i've just i i'm sure hugh has never forgotten it either <laughs> which is you know she's sort of on top of him on the the the, the green room settee i think like yeah. under a picture of like madison yeah. or dolly madison or whatever and you know and i i think it's i can't remember if it's the moment where tony's about to walk in or he comes in and sees it and kind of gets you know like blinded <laughs> by it whatever 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 but there's this this hilarious moment where she just you know hughes kind of there and sort of being somewhat gentlemanly and they're you know they're feigning passion but he's being sort of gentlemanly and she just grabs his hands and takes his hands and just puts them on her boobs and ladies and gentlemen that's julie louis that's how we just yeah. take control, take control of the situation. But it days. was a, it was control of the situation, but it was also fucking comedy control too. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's, that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. While we fangirling out. Um, Fangirl away. Yeah. You said that Larry David like helped you a lot with writing, like yeah. taught you a lot about it and with the outline and stuff. But and I was getting confused because I was like, but there isn't the script with Curb. So well, I'm talking about the Seinfeld scripts. It's so really he- where Seinfeld is where I learned from Larry to write okay. it and then have, we keep we we still do it on both curb when I did curb and then I took it to Veep and it's sort of what I have taken with me. But it's a, you know, it's a it's both a, a creation of a script but also philosophy and the, the main key point of the philosophy and what I remember, you know, as I think I said a little bit of was so 
when you were at Seinfeld, your first job was basically getting four stories approved. And the easiest way of thinking about it was for the four characters. You needed an Elaine story, a Jerry story, a George story, a Kramer story. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes one story could hold two guys. And I definitely had stories like that. For example, in one of my first episodes, I had sort of uh, Susan, George's fiance, wanting to become friends with Elaine and Elaine wanting to become friends with her and that upsetting George. And so my George Elaine story was really one story, which also was a nice thing because sometimes it gave you a little extra room kind of a thing. But basically you're, you're, you're getting four stories approved. That that's the basic, the gist of it. And then once you have your fourth story approved, you begin outlining. And what I remember the most about my outlining was I outlined what I thought was, and again, I was a diehard Seinfeld fan. I had been writing at that point. I had done three years on, I had done a couple of years at The Lampoon. I had done three years at Saturday Night Live. I'd never written a sitcom script per se. I mean, like I'd written like a, I think I'd written a spec Murphy Brown and a spec Simpsons episode, but you know what I'm saying? I had never I never had a job doing this, but here I was doing it. And I, but I was a fan and I sat down and, and I think early on what I did was what a lot of people had, which was, I think I sometimes had the voice, right? I could like sound like the characters and I could do jokes in the world. But when I sat down to do what was act one of my first script, which was, I think called the pool guy, which variety of stories, I believe it has the, uh, it's Jerry like sort of is, has this weird friendship. I think that was my first one. It has this weird friendship with the guy at his club. Who's like sort of the towel guy. And anyway, not the point of the story, but where I was going with it is. So I, I sat down and I, I basically on my dry erase board, I worked out act one and you bring Larry and Jerry in. And what I remember most was they didn't throw anything out. They just kind of, you know, the, 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 the vivid uh, description of it I best can do is they sort of like, you know, when you have like garbage, like in a garbage bag and you kind of have to like step on it to mush it down and then you can put more garbage in. That's what they did to my act one. And so what I thought was the act break when they were said and done, they kind of mushed everything together. And so all of a sudden I had two scenes in okay. some, to some extent, because what happened was I did like, here's the first scene of Elaine and here's George's first scene and here's Kramer's first scene. And it just, that's not, that wasn't the show. I, what what the show needed to be was here's Jerry's first scene. Now he goes to a coffee shop and tells, you know, George about what happened and makes a plan to deal with that. And then George comes in and tells him about his story. You know, again, it's the pieces of things. And then Elaine comes in with a date. And again, I'm making this all up because I can't remember the order of my first show. But the point is, is, Everything mushed together. So things aren't going to be singular. Multiple things are happening at the same time, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, in every scene, this is the this is the main thing. Story is always moving forward. That's the golden rule I learned from Larry David. Story must always move forward. If it's not moving the story forward, it can be the fucking funniest thing in the world. If it's not moving the story forward, you, you're going to find out you're hurting your script at some point or another. And so... Again, you step on the gar- the garbage, you shove more into the sausage casing, and it does two things. Number one, you it, it gives you that frenetic pace of which, you know, Seinfeld was fast, Curb is faster, and I'll put Veep 
as fast as anything and uh, it reminds me of what i love about like the great billy wilder like one two three and uh, some like it hot the speed where there's no again there's no silence joke 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 i don't care if you missed it watch it a second time you'll hear the line kind of a thing so two things happen one is you're mushing it all together and so that's happening and you're jamming more in and stuff is happening and when you watch other shows, you start to realize how little is happening in comparison. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that happens is if you can imagine what you thought was your act break is all of a sudden your second or third scene, yeah. <laughs> then then maybe if you're lucky, maybe what you thought was the end of your show, maybe, maybe is your act break. Maybe. And again, it doesn't always work like that because yeah. when you mush it down, stuff starts to happen. But Imagine, if you will, what you thought was the end of the show is your act break. And then it's almost like your second act is this not an it's not another thing. It's not like a Simpsons where they have an act one that's about one thing. And then at the and then acts two and three are completely different shows. But all of a sudden you are forced structurally, mentally, comedy wise to take this story far beyond where you initially thought about it. So what if you and how i always used to think about it as 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 a seinfeld fan was it was the explanation why the show was so different because it was almost as if like other shows would have taken the first three scenes and made a show out of them but it's the it's the endless discussions and the trying to get to the bottom of something or the whatever that is the now what well because what i think and i know physically it is partially it's and because eventually you don't make it your end and then mush it down you just start to internalize it but in some ways it makes like we're going to do the first two or three scenes is what any show would do and then as we keep going it's that's where it starts to become it's this thing that no one else can do and so you have those things going on and that's to me the secret to sitcom writing i mean that's a very abridged version but that in any sense my last question for you is because you love props i want to first of all i want to know how i mean there's so many questions here but do you ever take props? I mean, have you? Oh, taken- yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you talked about the Dubonnet and I, I've told this story somewhere, too. <laughs> but when oh, well, I wish I had when I when I when the show ended, I grabbed some stuff and then it was spring break and I went to uh, I took my family. Uh, we went to Paris. And when I came back from Paris, I discovered like, I don't know, HBO had signed some sort of deal with like a auction house and had given them everything and so i grabbed some stuff and i grabbed a couple of things but and it was funny julia too and julia and i both ended up bidding on things in the auction that we wanted (laughs) that we didn't get but the the, the, the fucking duvenet lipstick because it was one of one I paid $5,000 to get the Dubonnet back. I had no choice. I had no choice. But I mean, there was no way I, I mean, I was so mad at myself that I didn't grab it like the day of, but I, I paid, I paid $5,000 and change for it. Yeah. You know, for me, and again, I'm very aware, you know, with Veep, I didn't create the show. I think there are things I added to the show. There are characters I added and whatever. I didn't create it. So, you know, the parts that I am particularly, I'm proud of, you know, the legacy of it. I'm proud to have been a part of it. I think it's a brilliant show. I didn't create it. So, you know, the things that I guess I'll simply say that I did create within it are the things that like I 
you know, tried to take, so to speak. And that <laughs> one I should have taken and ended up. All ballistic. Yes. But no, I have stuff from everything I've ever worked on. I have stuff from basically everything. And are, are there rules though? Because like I thought with props and sets, set design. There are rules, but you know, look, TV, <laughs> to no, be broken. TV, TV number one is always a little different than like, especially like TV that takes place in the real world. Like, I don't know. Like if I was working on like a Star Wars TV show for Disney Plus, I'm sure I couldn't just walk in and take a lightsaber. Yeah, it's sort of different. But, yeah. you know, I took a flag lapel pin. I'm not sure anybody really cares. I mean, I guess they could have auctioned that off, too. But, you yeah. know, I took I took one of the many copies of Selena's books. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we had like 400 of them. And I yeah. took. Yeah. yeah. So it's a little different. But, yes, there are rules. But I don't know. It's you know, it's good to be the showrunner. What can I tell you? <laughs> <laughs> That's, this is why everyone wants to be a showrunner so you can just take props steal yeah. stuff yeah. Not the, not yeah. I know yeah. I definitely would be that naughty person being like I just so the pop, the props so that's like a full hobby though isn't it yes and yeah. by the way like I said I'm a collector it's definitely a part of what you know collecting for me is a little bit like uh, I don't know like when you hear about like people from like the like England in the 1800s that had their garden. Do you know what I mean? Like, like that, like I'm going to go putter in the garden. Like I go putter in my collection. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. But that's, it's true though. I look at this stuff. I rearrange it. I, Oh, what if this is here? Oh, look, I found this. I could buy this and put it with that. Or would that look better over here? Well, maybe I should make a new stand for, I mean, I do that. That's what I love about it. I have a circle of, you know, acquaintances and friends that are a part of it as well. And that's a part of it too. We're going to get together. And again, this is a lot of this is pre COVID. We're going to get together. We're going to get together. We're going to look at our latest deck. We're gonna, I want to see your thing. You're going to look at my thing. Oh my God. You're interested in buying one, bring yours out, bring it over. Let's measure them. Let's make sure they're the same. I don't know. All that kind of stuff. And you know, in a very fun, cool way. And then, you know, when COVID happened, you know, I, I don't know what happened in Australia, but here in the United States, it was actually a law passed that we had to start our podcast. Like you had no choice. Every citizen had to start a podcast. And so I, we, we, I, I guess in that world where no longer was I getting together in my living room with other people, because again, we were all worried we were all going to get each other kind of killed. All of a sudden the podcast kind of grew out of me and my buddy, uh, Ryan Condal, who is the showrunner of house of the dragon. Basically it's us, you know, basically recording the conversations from my living room that are no longer in my living room. And that's kind of what the outgrowth was. And very much COVID was definitely a part of like, we can't do this. How do we get that back? And that's really what the podcast is in a perfect world. It's a little bit like you get to listen in on yeah. what's on our minds about props that week. And that's really it. And it's in, like a vet, and it's very much about collecting because Collecting is a whole other thing. People are either collectors or they're not. And if you are not a collector, you don't understand it and you have no interest. You might be fascinated by it, but you don't, you just don't have the desire. But if you are a collector, um, and obviously there are degrees of collectors, you you get it. And you may collect your own thing, you may collect whatever baseball cards shoes blank 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 you know whatever doesn't matter what you collect it's all the same even though i'm talking about props so yeah can he steal things from house of the dragon i imagine that's one of those shows where you possibly I mean, think he can steal one or two things but i think it's sort of like a lightsaber it's probably a little hard yeah 
Yeah, like dragon eggs possibly can't be stolen. Yeah, yeah. It's I think it's it's a little harder. Again, it's hard. It's harder than a flag pin. Is I guess my main point. But yeah, just trying to, and then also like security, like trying to get out. Like, but at, when Seinfeld ended, I'm sorry, this is a, just remember this. When oh, Seinfeld ended, there were, I, God, there were so many, like there were parties because there was sort of a party the night we actually finished filming it. But yeah. then there was like another bigger sort of final rap party, oh, like when it like, we, like our rap party. And then I think we also, the night it aired. So there were many parties, but yeah. the night I think we finished filming it, we ended up back at the offices and then. You know, there was some, I don't know, cigar smoking and the ceremonial crossing off of the final episode that it was done and whatever, whatever. And we were there really late. And I remember we ended up going back to I think it was that night, unless it was the night of the 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 rap party. Anyway, one of those nights we ended up very late going back to the stage and they had installed cameras because people had been stealing like they, they had caught people stealing stuff from the Seinfeld set because people obviously and it was actually people working at the lot. It was, I think, like a security <laughs> a security guard. They caught a security guard stealing something on the cameras. Um, that person and, to do it, though. <laughs> yeah. And that that late at that night, we went in there. It was like Jerry and, and, and all the writers. And we went in there and we took that place apart. Like I, Jerry took the door. I remember someone had the cash register. Oh, the I mean, door. we just took stuff. And like... <laughs> I'll never, it was hilarious. I won't, I've never forgotten it because I remember like the next, whenever it was like the next day or two, like one of the producers was like, I saw some film footage from last night. Um, yeah. And it, and you know, and it was what it was. And of course what the funny thing was years later when we did curb, uh, when we did the Seinfeld seasons, I think Jerry brought back the door. Uh, and I think, uh, Alec Berg brought back the Kramer door. I think Alec took Kramer's door and Jerry took Jerry's door and out, they broke the doors back so they could have I the door. Taken, like all the cereal, you know, like all the fun kitchen things. And sure. People watching and it's like there was definitely a moment where it was just like like oh elaine's got brand new like you know macintosh laptops over at the jay peterman company and also by the way the writers are going to get an opportunity to buy discounted computers so yeah there was a lot of that kind of stuff in the back end yeah yeah it's amazing i just wanted to thank you so much you oh my pleasure i hope oh, my pleasure thank you very much yeah thank you